Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, a versatile actor that has over 20 credits to his name that include Fruitville Station, Law & Order SVU, 1883, and Friday Night Lights. He has over 15 years of experience on stage, commercials, film, and television. An entrepreneur, improv master, that has represented corporate businesses such as Dr. Pepper and Warner Brothers. A Plano native, Texas, please welcome to the show, Joey Oglesby. Joey, welcome to Before the Lights. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. It's going to be fun. Did you first know you wanted to get into the entertainment business when as a kid you were dressing up as Top Gun and doing lip sync to Word Al? <laughs> you aged me right off the bat. <laughs> me and you uh, both. Basically, I remember doing a lip sync contest actually to um, Yo, 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 Yoda from Weird Al, um, the, the parody of Lola. Um, and, you know, I was a church kid growing up, so I found myself doing a lot of skits and uh, church pageants and stuff. And then at a pretty early age, I was like, ah, you know, you have to choose something to as an elective. So uh, ninth grade, I did it and, and, and loved it and kind of been acting one way or another since. Were you an athlete as well in high school? And if so, what sports did you participate in? Yeah, I was an athlete first. I like to say I was pretty, I, I was an all-star athlete till puberty hit. It was the great equalizer for me. Um, had pretty, pretty, uh, you know, high level coordination, but the athleticism started catching up. I was fine, but you know, it, uh, you know, you start to get out of your depth. So I played through high school, um, played basketball, baseball and tennis in high school, played football. I stopped playing football, um, when I was a freshman, but I was a quarterback till then. Um, and my best sport is probably baseball. I was a uh, shortstop. You know, probably could have played a small college or something, but uh, I liked other things. I knew my, I knew I wasn't going to make any money doing it. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a hard, hard racket to make some uh, money in. So, so I went to a thing that was really easy to make money in. <laughs> right, right. Acting. Acting. You moved around your childhood between Texas and Tennessee and graduated from Plano East High School. Joey, what did being part of a play that a classmate wrote about drinking and driving do for you? Uh, wow. That's, um, so I, you know, I was a theater kid slash athlete throughout high school at Plano East and my senior year, I was in a, a specialized theater program that we all auditioned to get into. And in that program, um, our seniors got to write a play. Um, if they'd been in the program a couple of years, because I was in baseball, I had I'd only been at one year and they, uh, a friend of mine, Hillary Sheriff, her brother, that Christmas of our, of our senior year, um, was killed by a drunk driver and they were all going to therapy, trying to process all of it. And one of the things he said, he said, well, you're a theater student. Why don't you, why don't you write about it? So she wrote this play called 12, six, five. Um, cause that's how old he was 12 years, six days, uh, six months, five days when he, um, passed away and went through the whole process, cast the play and, and they ended up casting me as the, as the younger brother. Um, Obviously, I was a little older for it. It's a play. It's in high school. You kind of give a little bit of liberty to that. And, and I played um, her brother, and, and my costume actually was his baseball jersey. 
So I got to wear his baseball jersey and and basically the play was them writing letters and then him kind of being supernaturally talking to them, supporting them. Um, and we did it one time. And I'd been in a lot of plays by that point. Um, but whatever happened that day um, was, was pretty special. And um, it, it was surreal. I came out. I felt like I was kind of watching everything. And there was just an energy that was palpable. It was hard to describe. Um, it wasn't even about the attention, really. People came up and said, you know, we felt like Jeremy was there. And that's going to happen. It was a very emotional thing. I don't necessarily know if that was – all uh, because of how great I was or anything. It just showed me the power of theater, the, the power of storytelling to um, rehabilitate people and to, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, how that has kind of come full circle, but mm-hmm. um, man, it was an incredible, incredible experience um, to go through as an actor. And it, it just cemented, I thought I wanted to do it anyway, but it cemented the power that could have it and, that the theater could have. And, and I was hooked. You attended Baylor university and studied theater arts there. And then you moved to New York. What did living in New York teach you? And what did you learn from that experience? Well, I was fortunate enough to be scheduled to move to New York on September 13th, 2001. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, for all of us, and now that you realize half the people don't even remember 9-11, you know, at this point, but for all of us, you know, what President Bush got up there and said was keep going on with your life. That's how they don't win. So everybody's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because it's not like I'm going on with my life in Dallas. I was moving to New York City. So my the plane, the flights got canceled um, for a couple of days. And then finally on, on the 15th, I was one of the actually the very first flights into New York City. Um, that night. Um, and I can remember two, two really cool things happened actually. I mean, it was very uneasy to fly, but in some way you felt like, well, this has to be the safest it could ever be because how they would never let this happen again. And I remember we're in the airport in Atlanta and the pilot came out into the waiting room and stood up on some chairs and said, Hey, everybody, I, I know it's been a rough, rough week, but we're going to take care of you up there. And I have some natural anxiety for flying. So that, that was really comforting to me. And then when we came in, they banked us over, um, you know, just the way you come into LaGuardia, they banked us over and just looked down to basically fresh um, ground zero. So it was a very, that was obviously an auspicious start to my time in New York. It wasn't a good time for a non-singing actor. Everything shut down. For the most part, I had no credits. I was going there to chase my dreams. So, you know, I uh, bar- uh, bartended and, <laughs> you know, made drinks, Chelsea Brewing Company, and drank a lot um, and had a lot of fun. Um, and I, I did a play out in Montclair, New Jersey. So that's off, 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 off Broadway and then over the river. Um, so it just didn't quite go how I expected. I was there a couple of years. Um, what was really kind of uh, life changing when I look back, though, was I've been in, in Texas my whole life, um, grew up in a very southern, typical Christian kind of suburbs, Plano, Texas. And ending up in New York, I just got to meet a lot of different types of people and see that the world was a lot bigger than that. Um, and just just got to experience so much more of life and, and being an actor 
you know, Meisner says it takes 20 years to, to really be an actor. Well, it's because of those experiences, meeting different people and, and um, becoming empathetic to other people's plights and just realizing not everybody grew up like you for better or for worse. So I, I think that time was really impactful for what I was, um, what I was going to end up doing with my life, but the actual practical benefits were limited as far as what I was able to accomplish as an actor, as far as my goals when I went there. And, um, and so ultimately I, I found it the right decision to come back to Dallas for a while. And then when you came back to Dallas, you were an actor in both stage and broadcast for several years. And then you starred as Ray in Lone Star with the Contemporary Theater of Dallas. You also were part of the best little whorehouse in Texas. And you know this play really well because you directed the show in college and played Roy in high school in this play. What is the attraction to Lone Star and Joey Oglesby? Oh, boy. I... I I'll never do Lone Star again. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> I have done Lone Star. Well, mainly because it, it kind of fit. I, I'm an interesting. One of the things you have to learn as an actor is to kind of understand yourself. And just because I feel a certain way inside doesn't mean I come across that way on stage or film. And I come across very differently on stage than I do on film. But one of the things that I was always kind of in my wheelhouse because it was kind of the people I come from, but not necessarily what I was growing up as as a suburbanite in the mid 90s. I had lived in the country when I was younger. So I, I knew these people. Lone Star is a play about a, a, a Vietnam vet coming back from Vietnam and, and things not being the same. And uh it was, it just fit what I do as an actor, especially I played Ray a couple of times. I played Ray in New York city just like five years ago. Mm. We did a production up there. Um, and I think Lone Star, it fit me, my sensibility comedically. Um, and I was able to play Ray. I've actually played both characters in it. Um, but I think more than anything, it, 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 it has this huge heart, which I like too because it's about brothers about somebody coming home and things changing. And it's easy to look at it as just a comedy. In fact, a, a friend of mine came and saw it when I was in New York, a brilliant um, actor named um, Will Harper. And he, I said, well, what do you think, man? We weren't getting that big of crowds or anything. And it's not really a, as relevant of play as what a lot of things were doing then. I said, well, how do we, how do we attack it then? Cause he had been working off probably and stuff. And he said, you, you just got to play it as real as, as you can as a guy, not that I was trying to do that, but this is a guy whose brother is hurting badly and you're watching him and, and that hit home to me a little bit. And so, you know, it, it has all these iterations. It has um, UIL in high school where you're just trying to make people laugh with funny jokes to um, me actually directing it. First time I've ever directed anybody and not getting tacked in it. So then doing it at contemporary theater and it, going great and then going and do it in New York and, and actually changing the way I did it uh, pretty dramatically um, still finding the last, but trying to find a little more heart into it. So I don't know if it's going to go down as the greatest play that ever lived. Um, it's a great um, uh, McClure who, who wrote it, a great playwright. I think it premiered at SMU. So it had some, some roots down here in Dallas, but it sure does mean something to me. And it's, it's interesting tracking it through 15 plus years of doing it from a high school stage in Plano to an off-Broadway stage in New York. Your first credit is in 2007 as the voice of Jasper in the video game, Brother in Arms, Hell's Highway. 
How did you get hooked up with this project? And what was it like doing, being a voice first off before actually getting your foot in the door and getting on screen? So Jasper, um, I haven't thought about Jasper in a while. Jasper was a interesting fellow. Um, my career really was based on stage. I was a stage actor and then I started doing sketch comedy and, and that started going pretty well in Dallas. I was a member of two groups, the STDs and chicken and pickle guys. And I started traveling some performing in Austin and Houston around. And um, I was doing a character called the inappropriate guy, very generic kind of SNL type character and um, SNL style character. And they, a guy, a director in town just kind of had seen me do it and they were doing the 24 hour video race. And he um, said, Hey, come do this. We're going to improvise it. And I think you're going to be perfect for this idea I have. I actually did it with Allison Tolman, who's a terrific actor um, and and working a ton right now uh, for Fargo and stuff. And her and I did our first uh, film together just a short film and it won the 24 hour um, video race called date me and Allison's other incredible improviser, Jim Kenzer out of Dallas, funny, funny people. And the, once I got it, they took some agents saw it. They asked me to come along and then you start auditioning. Actually, the first time I got anything was a Whataburger commercial. Um, and it ran enough to drive any person crazy. <laughs> um, but you, you start to feel like, Oh, this is fun. This is on set. And then, you know, I was auditioning for voiceover a lot. My voice, my voice is kind of a, a blessing and a curse because it's very unique. It doesn't always add up to the way I look, which can be really cool and interesting. Um, but sometimes it's hard to find the pocket, um, on the voiceover. And I really wasn't, but Jasper really fit it. He was kind of a Southern guy, um, a little bit nicer than the rest of them. And, and it's all in your voice in those things. And what, what people I don't think understand is, is how hard it work, especially now. I, I don't do much voiceover. I got a lot of friends that do, uh, you know, they're doing motion capture now or performance capture as they call it. And, it, you know, you spend even two hours in a booth doing, a, they call it inertions, um, you know, uh, you know, like these things, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You'll never work. You'll feel like you've never worked harder. Um, and then the screaming, cause you're in war and, and it's not like they're adjusting it up. They want you to be at full volume. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't done a lot. It was fun. It's cool to go back and hear myself on that game. Um, it was that whole period. was just really cool because you're like, Oh yeah, I've always done this on stage, made a little money, you know, didn't really know if it could trance, um, move move into the world of making more money and being a professional like on film and, and stuff and it was starting to happen and that was exciting 2008 friday night lights your first tv gig you played a cashier for one episode and then you were guy rastin did they bring you back after the one episode or how did you get casted for guy so i was uh guy rastin he's my favorite um he was, uh, so I auditioned for a guy in season one that I think Jason Street is supposed to be fighting the fights I got with the lights or something like that. And I was put on hold for it. I was so excited and I didn't get it. And I was just devastated and just, just frustrated. And it felt like the end of the world to me at that point. And then episode 17 came along. I got a call from my agent and said, Hey, Jeffrey Reiner, the, the executive producer and the show, he wasn't the showrunner, but he was the producing director. So he was kind of running things down in Texas while Jason Kadams was writing things in LA. He said, Hey, he wants you to come do this cashier part. 
Um, it's just a scene, but you don't have to audition. Just come do it. So I went and did it. Had a blast. Um, I'm, I'm basically IDing uh, Street, and there was this line. This is how he tells the story. There was this line where I say, um, you know, enjoy or thanks for your is it thanks for your service or enjoy the beer, Mister whatever the fake ID said, right? And for some reason, Jeffrey Reiner, when he was watching this back, could not figure out whether or not I knew he was underage or not. Like there was something about this reading that he loved. He told me this later. So then we get to um, second season, going through a little bit, getting into it. I had not an audition yet. I actually had a conversation with my agent. I was like, why am I not getting anything? A friend got something I thought I should go up for. It. And they called and said, Hey, they got this audition for this part. Guy Rassum want you to come down. I was doing a play in Fort Worth at the time. that was based in the seventies. So I had these huge chops they hadn't gotten out of control. If you if you've seen me on Friday Night Lights, they get out of control. But they were they were there and they were substantial. Mm-hmm. So I decided to um, I decided to uh, so I audition and and the audition process at Friday Night Lights, especially if you're gonna be working with Taylor Kitsch, who plays Riggins. There was a lot of imp- improvisation, and obviously I felt pretty comfortable with that. Um, and so in the audition, you kind of do the lines, and then he just started interviewing me, asking me things, pressing my buttons, and probably the best audition of my life. Just really, really was comfortable and sat in the pocket. And believe me, I've struggled with anxiety during auditions, but this one went well. And as I was leaving, the the casting director said, Hey, Hey, um, grabbed me as I was leaving. said, Hey, don't cut those sideburns. I was like, okay, that's a pretty good sign. So (laughs) I went back and went down. I knew at that point I was going to be in two episodes. Um, and that was just so exciting. Cause here, this happened so much with actors. Like I was so mad. I didn't get the one scene in season one, you know, I was so, so frustrated. And, and then you say, you, you decide, well, I don't know if the show will be back. So you take the five lines in the cashier and then you just happen to say a line just probably randomly, you know, that he loves. And then all of a sudden, and, he, and they told me later that he really thought about me for this part. Like he kind of had me in mind and, and then I ended up doing, you know, five, six episodes all together. And, and Friday Night Lights was just an incredible experience. In Friday Night Lights, Joey, what was it like working with Taylor Kitsch, who played Riggins? And also, what kind of freedom did you have to play that role? Uh, all the freedom. Um, and working with Kitsch was was amazing. He was, I was lucky because one of my, um, coincidentally, uh, friends I lived with in New York um, during that time played Billy Riggins. Um, there's no connection really to getting the jobs, but there we were, like we went to, we went to Baylor together. We were in Hamlet together at, at Baylor. And so that's always nice because you're walking into an established show. And when you have a good friend, that's now become really great friends and playing these brothers that have become iconic. Um, that's a good end. So there's a lot of comfortability with, with Kitsch and, um, with Reiner who was directing most of it and the, the amount of freedom. And this just goes to show what, what Kadoms and what Pete Berg set with the pilot. And I, I know I've heard stories, you know, they're doing um, uh, episode podcasts mm-hmm. right now of Friday Night Lights. And they, you know, they've told stories about how Peter Berg told those actors, you know, this is your show, you know, the characters, because that's what happens in TV. People don't realize that as much as guest directors come in all the time and they're talented and they, they want to do their thing, but it's really an actor's show. They have, they have the power to kind of decide which way it goes. Now, as a guest star actor, you don't necessarily, but they weren't bringing anybody on there that didn't have the freedom. And if you were going to work with Taylor Kitsch, you better throw the script out because if he, if he wasn't feeling it or he wanted to do something else, then 
then he was going to do that. I'm specifically talking about Friday Night Lights, um, not other things. Um, And he was just an incredible partner. I think, I think Kitch is just such a great actor and he he listens and um, reacts and we just laughed, man. It was so ridiculous. Some of the stuff like sitting up in the, the deer blind and, and, and (laughs) just, and I just remember days where we were shooting the, the truck scene and just me and him and Ryan are just crying. And, and one of the things that's so cool about Friday Night Lights is all those people are still really close. And even people that played the kind of tertiary characters and on the periphery, like I did, we're still close to a lot of those people and, and those people love each other. And it was just a family. And it was like, we got to do our own thing down here in, in Austin without kind of the interference of everything else that kind of gets in the way sometimes. And, just a magical experience and, and nothing really like it. And I think a lot of the actors who have been on it will say since there's great things. I've been a, a part of some amazing things um, that I'm very proud to be a part of, but that was, that was a pretty magical, you know, I was in my late twenties and about to move to LA and it was great. Joey, what kind of research do you have to do to play a guest character role? Like you did on law and order SVU when you played Mickey Pappas in the episode, <laughs> acceptable loss and some of these other, you know, guest character appearances you've done? Well, um, you don't have a lot of time. First of all, when you're a guest star actor, you're really paid. You've gotten the audition. You got to think about how many people are up for these auditions to even get the audition. You know, they, most of the time, the rule is if they're not talking to you, things are going great because they want you to do what you did in the audition and the shows are about the other people and you're to push it along. And, and sometimes you're pl- not, not that it's harder, but you're playing more bigger characters or more nuanced characters or ones that are breaking down because you're being interviewed by Ice-T or whatever. Right. So I end up playing a lot of dirtbags. I play a lot of, um, I mean, this guy was, you know, a rapist and a spoiler alert. Right. Right. If anybody hasn't gotten episode 300 or 299 <laughs> of SBU. Um, so, you know, I was playing a rapist and for me and those things, which obviously are, are very far from who I am. And I think a lot of like bad guy actors kind of fall into like being really kind of nice guys in general. And, and you just try to try to focus on the lines as they are having the action of them and kind of stay in that moment without, you know, I, I don't want to go too deep. I mean, we're all taught to to not judge our characters, but this guy was a child trafficking rapist, you know? So if he's in a situation where he's getting caught with something or, you know, one of the things that's happening in, in the episode is he's, um, his dad isn't really into him. Well, I can use that without going to the the bad, bad stuff. What it feels like to have a dad that thinks you're an idiot or or just anybody, Right. So you start to try to use these little things to kind of to kind of like get you in the pocket for it. And then you really start to learn tricks on on TV about how you come across, you know, what what looks works well. And then from there, you know, there's these kind of things you can do that are really working. And then you want to also kind of from up from that, definitely motivate it and ground it, make it real. So all of that kind of comes together. You know, I, I hope that there's 
uh, and when we get to Fruitvale, which I'm sure we will, I did a lot more research on that than I would on something on Mickey because it's real people, you know. So guest star acting is interesting, man. Go do your job. If the director's not talking to you, fantastic. Um, if he does and he's just wanting to collaborate, that's great too. But, you know, if he starts talking to you a lot and every take, it's like, well, you're not really doing what he wants. So, um, you you know, there's a there's a great story. You want a story from SVU? Sure. So I'm uh, I'm in the scene. They've caught me. I'm in the hot tub, and um, I've always fluctuated weight a lot, a little bigger at this stage. And they wanted me naked. They wanted like this guy to be sitting there listening to his music, roll up on him, and put a gun on him, say "Get up, Mikey" or whatever. The gig's over or whatever. And it's and it's iced tea, right? Which is surreal anyway. I grew up in the '80s and '90s. It's iced tea, you know. And uh, so. We're out there. It's middle of Queens. It's the first take um, They, you know, they put this small, small, what can only be described as a flesh colored uh, banana hammock type thing. And if it was that, it would be more covering than this thing and smashing all my junk down. And, you know, but then you got to do the scene or whatever, and you're waiting and waiting and they, they pull you out, they get up. They asked me to put my arms up and putting them up. So I'm naked. Like that's kind of the bit, right? That's a little bit of a bit at this part of the show and the third, fourth act or whatever. And we're sitting there and all the lines have been said. And I'm just sitting there kind of naked. No one's saying anything. And they're just kind of holding like nothing's happening. And finally, Ice-T was just like kind of looking at me and he, he just goes, <laughs> can I do an Ice-T impression? I'm not very good at it. Go ahead. He goes, Yo. Cover your dick. <laughs> so for me, everything was so surreal right at that second because one, then they got caught. Everybody laughs, right? Ice T was trying to like let me off the hook, like let this guy go, man. Let's go. Why are you just standing on him? And then, but then to me, it immediately became very surreal because I, it's like I just heard Ice T say "cover your dick" to me, and and I wouldn't, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that was always one of my goals. <laughs> Joey, before we get into Fruitvale, what is the self-doubt prior to going to set and then the pressure when it's action time? Oh, jeez. Boy, you got the right guy. I, uh, it's, it is this incredible combination of excitement and terror. Um, can I do this even though you've been doing it? Imposter syndrome then talking yourself down into, no, you do this. You know, I just did this on Friday Night Lights. You know, if you're on SVU, if you're on Friday Night Lights, I just did this at Whataburger. You know, and I'm sure we, we might get into the, the biggest stakes I've ever had later, but it was, it's, it's exhausting. Um, it's exhilarating when you do it good. It's, um, what would the word be? Comforting or... You know, you take a deep breath when when you kind of the pro, the hard part about guest star acts is you're not there a long time. I don't think it's the matching up and working with these great actors like Ice T and, and Mariska and stuff. If you're working with them every day and you felt like comfortable with it, but it's like you come in, you've got to hit it. They can mess up, you can't. It's just a lot of pressure. And I think that um, I mean, stars on shows, that's another thing people don't realize. They work their asses off. I mean, they work their asses off, the hours and exhaustion and stuff, and they get paid well for it, right? 
but as far as like coming in and just doing a, a you know one episode thing, it's it's not easy either. Just as far as the pressure and fitting in, most of the sets I've been on, most of the people I've met, Ice T was great, Risco was great. Most of these people that have stayed at that level for a long time are pretty good people. I think people assume sometimes they're all dickheads, and they're just not. You'll run into one or two, but they're just not. So it, it's a for me, I've had to learn how to deal with the anxiety and understand it. It's weird because sometimes, especially during COVID, right? A lot of people for the first time had anxiety. They didn't, they didn't know what it was. Well, I, I know it so well. It's like a companion on this trip with me. So it's like, Hey, okay, you're there. Say what you're going to say. And then I'm going to, I know I can get through this, do a little breathing, some other things. And then, and then, you know, have a good take. You know, the worst thing is when you might go up or something early and then it can build on itself, um, go up on your lines or something. So it's a, it's a fine line, but it's part of, you know, what did Dak Prescott say this week? Is like, um, pressure is a responsibility, you know? And if you can't handle it, it's like you're getting paid. Everybody in the world wants to be there, then get on out. And sometimes I thought I might have to, but I, I've kept going, you know? 2013, Fruitvale Station, you played Cal, the story of Oscar Grant III, who crosses paths with friends, enemies, family, and strangers on the last day of the year in 2008, it also stars Michael B. Jordan, who also was part of Friday Night Lights in the later episodes. So there's another spoiler alert if you haven't seen episode or seasons five and, or four and five there. But what kind of research did you do for this show? Fruitvale was, uh, oh God, what an incredible experience Fruitvale was. So I, I, I was um, living out in L.A. and Derek Phillips, who was, played Billy Riggins, one of my great friends, he had become close because I never worked with Michael on Friday Night Lights, but he had become close to him. So we were, we were all hanging out a little bit, not a ton, just, just a few times here and there. So Michael knew of me and we played basketball a lot together. I'm kind of a gym rat. I play a lot of pickup basketball, always have. And we were playing basketball, you know, I see them every couple of weeks. And they were up there in San Fran getting ready to shoot. And I think they lost the guy. They thought they had a guy they thought they were going to do and they couldn't get a schedule worked out. And they could not find anybody to, um, to, to, that they thought fit the role because Kale is a combination of two guys that in the, in the real story. But they kind of had an idea of what they wanted visually for it. And Michael called me. Um, you know, it wasn't normal for us to be on the phone or anything, but he, he called me and said, hey, man, I, you know, there's this thing and, and we're doing it. It's going to be really cool. And uh, I think you're right for this part. You want to put something on tape for me. Obviously, yeah, just so, so excited. Um, didn't know anything about it. Started immediately researching Oscar Grant um, and the, the absolute tragedy that, that his story is. I mean, it's just a brutal story. And put the audition on tape. Um, they loved it, which was great. Um, I think it's one of my better auditions. I guess usually the stuff you get are your better auditions. And then I quickly was going up to Oakland to stay. Um, you know, I have a couple scenes in it, but the way it was all up, I was going to be up there for a couple of weeks. So when I got there, you know, I was trying to get with producers. And I was trying to find everything I could out about Kale. Um, and I started doing a lot of research on Oakland gangs, um, the music of Oakland. That's one thing I use a lot during Fruitvale because here I am this, you know, half country boy from Tennessee, half suburban boy from Plano, Texas. And now I'm playing an Oakland, half Hispanic, half white Oakland gangster, you know? So this is 
not not the normal like that's that's the thing about me as an actor is unfortunately maybe it'll happen someday but most of the time people aren't really interested in just me like they might be just interested in julia roberts you know what i mean like i'm having to do these things or play these things and and it's so much fun right um but so i was like so i listen to music a lot what was oscar grant listening to what were these guys listening to and then um (laughs) then i uh uh, got to Ryan. I'm going to just do a great story about Ryan Coogler because Ryan has ascended to, you know, a list director and he took the time they, and they were about to start shooting. I think they were shooting. He took like three hours out of his day to, to come. He's like, Hey, I want to take you to get lined up, which is the terms for like lining up your hair, like in, in, in the inner city of Oakland or anywhere really. So I want, I want you to go to a real Oakland um, barbershop see what Oakland's like. So here's me and Ryan Coogler going back to his neighborhood up near kind of Berkeley, California, right on the outskirts of Oakland. And um, I'm just rolling around with Coogler going in only white guy, obviously um, in the barbershop. And, you know, you're again, it's surreal, but it's, it's, it's so cool that you're getting to experience these things. And he, they lined me up and then, you know, Ryan just, ask me about myself and you know it's just that's the kind of thing you see an artist that rise to the levels that ryan and michael have and um it was just such a welcoming fruitvale although a much heavier subject was a lot like friday night lights in that we were off from la seemed smaller it felt like when i used to do plays right and um everybody was kind of in it together and this amazing dp who became the first cinematographer, female cinematographer to ever be nominated for an, an Oscar. Rachel Morrison was like hanging, like when we were shooting in the train, she's like hanging off of the handles. I mean, she's only like 120 pounds with this giant camera so she can feel in. She's like, I want to be in it, you know? It's just an amazing experience. Then you add on the level of heaviness of, of this and, and that there's his family around. A lot of the guys that that rolled with me and rolled with Michael and, you know, we were rivals in the movie. These are some of them, uh, you know, might've known Oscar, you know, there's some real people in there and then, and throughout the premieres and all that kind of stuff, you get to meet Oscar's family. And it's like, this just isn't, this is somebody's son. And that's the point of the movie, right? It's, mm-hmm. this is somebody's son. This is uh, for better or for worse. We all got good and bad. No one deserves it to be shot dead while they're in handcuffs, you know, and, um, it was a, just a tremendous experience. We got to shoot in San Quentin prison. Um, and we actually went in and the guys in that scene are like real prisoners. They were part of the video team. Yeah. So, so they were vetted. And, and so, uh, you know, in the middle of that, um, Octavia and Michael are doing the scene and, I'm, I'm kind of waiting and they're doing all their stuff. We're going to do mine last. And this is kind of gets back to, I wasn't a guest star because that's not how it works on a movie, but I was, you know, coming in supporting cast or whatever. And they had this major mom thing, you know, like there's a major scene for them and I come in and interrupt it and that's big too, but it, you know, they worked all day. That's Octavia Michael. She had just come off an Oscar. I mean, this was a, you know, their thing. And so then you get to the end and then me and Michael are shooting. It's important for you to see the anger in Oscar during that scene. And boy, I'd seen Michael do some stuff. You know, I, I'm a Wire fan. I loved his work on Friday Night Lights. When he snapped on me, my character Daniel Kale, the first time in there, to a level I'd never seen before, 
I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> that's where we're going to go. And then you just have to go. Right. And, and the way it works, you know, in films is they're almost always going to get their coverage and then they're going to turn around on you last. So here you've been doing this scene. I don't want to give my all, you know, I come from the stage. I'm not, this is, I'm trying to get opportunities. So I'm giving it everything to Michael every time. And you, you know, that, that takes a lot out of you. And then you got to turn around and you only get maybe one or two takes, I think, because we had a finite amount of time that the California penal system was going to allow us to be in there. So just, uh, you know, those are the type of things that even as a guest star actor, I'm not famous in any way, but you know, being a part of these things just is so cool to live those experiences, to talk to those guys that were in the prisons and, it's a cool world to have been a part of them. I'm glad to be a part of it. I don't know if we have time. I have another ridiculous story about, about, do we have it? Yeah. So in Fruitvale, I play this character that obviously is on the streets. Um, he's part minority or whatever. And, and I, I had to say, cause I really thought after being in the prison and talking to the guys and stuff that I could, uh, that he would say the N word. That's just how people talked. Right. And here I am this white kid. It's a hard conversation to have. But Ryan absolutely was like, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And I was so in this kind of like world that they were living in. It was feeling very natural or whatever, right? So then Fruit Bell's over. I go down to shoot this parody movie um, where I'm playing a <laughs> country bumpkin, as I do a lot. And I'm back to like Texas and Southern and all this stuff and, and holding out my words <laughs> and all that. And I get a call from my agents and say, they need you to do ADR on Fruitvale. So ADR, you go in and you have to match. They didn't get the sound they wanted, so but they liked the cut or whatever, the edit, and they'll go in and, <laughs> and you'll add the sound. Well, as luck had it, I was, um, the scene included the use of this, which by the way, is ju just the worst word. I never in my life thought I'd, would have to say it obviously. And, um, but now I have to say it again. <laughs> and so I, you know, but again, I've been playing, Hey, you, you know, you come over here, you know, like hold my R's out <laughs> in this, in this thing I was. So I go in, I feel like I'm getting in Daniel Kale mode, you know, this kind of Oakland gangster and I do it a few times or whatever. And I see Ryan over there. He's kind of looking at me and then I'm like, okay, okay, do it again. Something doesn't seem right. And so, uh, Ryan comes over to me and he's like, Joe, 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 come here. He's like, Hey man, uh, no big deal or anything, but, uh, how about a less, how about a little less ER, a little more A <laughs> it's, I love that story because it's, it was artists, it was collaboration. It was ridiculous. It's, you know, um, so, you know, the, these things, you know, I feel just really lucky that I've gotten, I can tell that story and, and all that. Cause you know, it's a hard road. You don't, What's hot right now is the prequel to Yellowstone in 1883. You're in episode two, Behind Us a Cliff, as Clyde. I recently saw the episode, thought you did a really good job, and that's when I reached out to your agent. I had seen you in Friday Night Lights. I'd seen you in SVU. And when I saw you in that, it just kind of gave me an idea that, as I said at the opening, you are a versatile actor that can take on a majority of roles and waiting for a break to get a major role. How was it being part of that 1883 crew? Man, 1883 was like bucket list actor stuff, right? Black hat, riding horses. I'm out in the middle of uh, Texas on the the Trinity out past Weatherford. Again, 
these these experiences, the ones that really stand out, like we're all we're all in it together. I mean, these are major production. Obviously, Yellowstone was huge, and Taylor, what Taylor Sheridan has done is just incredible. Um, the the thing is, again, just kind of staying on the theme of what you have to do as a guest star, though, is you're you're brought in, get your stuff. You know, costumes are so amazing, uh, but I'm wearing these, you know, 40, 50 pounds of, of stuff on me, shaps and guns and all that. And and then they want you to ride the horse. Well, I've been riding horses my whole life, but I don't ride horses like they ride horses. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like I can play basketball, but they're not going to let me, you know, be Chris Mullen because I, you know, so you have to have a little Hollywood magic or whatever. Right. But you know, I could ride. And so they send me with this awesome guy that um, has been doing every Western since lonesome dove. And he's my horse guy. He's amazing. And I had this amazing horse and they're teaching me, but it's quick. Like it's like an hour. I'm trying to like learn all the stuff they want me to do. And then my whole posse in that episode, they're all professional riders. Some of those guys are the best horseback riders in the world as far as like TV stuntmen, horse riders. And you see that in a scene. You see the one horse fall down. They, I mean, these guys are just incredible, right? Um, and so you, you, you again are like packing all this stuff in while you still have to act and you have to do this. And they want you to hit spots on a horse and they want you. These horses are used to like people that are really good at it. Not me, like jerking, and you're like, "What are you doing back there, man?" <laughs> um, so, <laughs> for me, you know, it's the same thing. But um, I had come off of shooting um, the, the new Scorsese movie, "Killers of the Flower Moon." Killers of the Flower Moon, which uh, we might talk about, but there was so much pressure in that that this just felt like it really was kind of a moment for me. It's like, hey, I've done all that, you know, from from brilliant actors like Kyle Chandler and Taylor and Mariska and Ice-T saying cover your dick and, you know, all of that. And then I got to this thing and Killers of Flat Moon. I was like, oh, you're, you're fine, Joey. So there was a level of comfort. And I think it showed a little bit of my performance and, and ease that, that I've been trying to attain for a long time um, of kind of the anxiety being gone. Um, and, you know, I was working with cool people. Faith was just, my God, Faith Hill was kind and uh, just sweet and encouraging. And the whole cast was, and, um, but it was long days. Um, a lot of those takes and, and, you know, I had a, you know, <laughs> trying to get up on a horse is, you know, that's at an angle on a, on a thing while people are hitting you and you're trying to get out at the same time, it might leave you with your, your pants falling down a take or two. And it might leave you not ever getting on the horse and everybody riding out of town, as you see in the clip and me just sitting there and be like, I couldn't get in. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but the difference I think this time was, it was just like, yeah, it's okay. I'll, I'll do my thing. These, you know, I, because I play these guys that, t- that take punches and throw punches and shoot and all this stuff. Um, and you're only there for a few days. You always want to be perfect. I'll do my own thing. I'll do my own thing. You know, I'll do my own stunts and stuff. And, and there it's like, okay, I just didn't get in. I'm an actor, I'm not a horseman, you know, but you can see me. It looks like I'm, I'm starting a motorcycle that won't start <laughs> kicking desperately, desperately trying to find the stirrup and not ever finding it. And then just, I, I cannot imagine how much fun they watched of me not getting into that stirrup a few times, but then you do it a few times. You feel like a badass. You ride off to Fort Worth, come back and shoot everybody up. And then can we spoiler alert this spoiler alert people. If you haven't seen it, cover your ears. 
you get shot by Billy Bob Thornton. And it's, it's like, uh, it's pretty cool. Let's talk about the new project you mentioned, Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Morton Scorsese. You're going to play Roy Bunch. And if I, my memory serves you right, I'm here in Las Vegas. Roy Bunch is like an antique gambler. And this features Leonardo DiCaprio, Jesse Plemons, who was in Friday Night Lights, Robert De Niro, and John Lithgow. How did you land the, the part and how was it playing Roy Bunch? Roy, uh, man, what an experience. Um, I mean, you dream your whole life, especially my age, you grew up, you know, Scorsese and De Niro and I mean, and, and then DiCaprio is obviously DiCaprio. And, and so you get the call, there's this audition. You don't really even know much about it. I got a call in February and, um, I did the audition with the casting director was up in, in New York, which was a little interesting because a lot of times you just put on tape but this, um, they wanted to do the audition on a zoom. So I did the audition went pretty well. Um, and then didn't really hear anything for months and months and months. Um, that was probably in February, I didn't say months to months, about two and a half months. Then I got a call in, in May that says, Hey, Scorsese wrote this part back in that they didn't think they were going to do. And they went back and looked through some of the tapes for these types of characters and they liked yours. They want to have you audition again. Um, and I don't know if it was Scorsese that looked at the tapes at that point. It was um, the casting director and, and they said they liked you. And so then I went back on zoom and again, um, just a amazing experience uh, auditioning and just such a warm room. Not all casting rooms are warm. And even though with COVID and everything, the zoom, made it a little bit less um, intimate. It, it, I just knew it went well. And then you can always tell when a casting director starts asking about, it's kind of like the front lights. They said, don't cut your, your uh, sideburns. Well, when I was getting off, she said, Hey, you know, you're, they don't have shaved heads back then. I usually have a shaved head, but I've been growing a little bit. She said, don't cut your hair. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, here, here we go. Um, but then it just, took for um ever to get the official yes um and i waited and waited and we kept checking in oh they like you they like you're waiting for marty to see your tape and that's just a weird thing to hear anyway you know? i'm sure just to know that he's going to watch your tape and so then i um they booked me and then I'm, I'm headed out to oklahoma and just everybody's just the best the best costumers the best accent guys and the town had been trans um, formed into this old West town. Um, just the scale of a, of a Scorsese movie is just, is, it's just so cool, man. And, and then I was lucky because the first thing I did had nobody that I've been, you know, admiring my whole life, um, in it. And, and that went pretty well, but then you have to do a scene with Robert De Niro and it's just me, De Niro, and DiCaprio and you know at one point we all get in a huddle and, and it's us three and Scorsese you know which one's not like the others <laughs> a little bit what you feel like but you got a job to do and they cast you for a reason and Scorsese so sweet so giving so open so collaborative um and, and just area, I mean, the costumes you have on is just, it just feels so real. And I mean, the truth is I had a lot of anxiety that day. I, I felt lightheaded and you just have to, you have to talk yourself down. You have to do your job. Um, and DiCaprio had this moment, the most movie star thing I've ever seen in a good way where he kind of winked at me and it was about to be my coverage and threw his, 
you know, cigarette down or something at the same time. And like, here we go. It's your turn guy, which was felt inclusive, you know, cause you know, you don't always feel that. So, you know, those little things help you. And I think, I think movie stars and people that work a lot understand the kind of pressure you're under in those circumstances. And ultimately after I got a few takes into me and, and you're standing two inches from De Niro, having this scene with them, um, you, you start to relax a little bit. The cool thing was the next day I was, I had to come back De Niro and DiCaprio were wrapped and, and they got rid of them, but I had to be there for some coverage of that scene that they weren't in. And that day I had no lines and I just got to really breathe. And, and the big thing I've been stressing about since February, you know, was over and I just got to enjoy being an actor. And by that time I'd been there a week and all the crew knew me and, and it was just, it was a great crew and, and the story is so important. Um, it's just going to, I think it's going to be an incredible movie and, and just a story that needs to be told. Um, I'm excited for Jesse, who's a, who's a, a good friend of mine to, to get to play this, this part uh, of this Texas Ranger, Tom, he's going to be terrific. I'm looking forward to seeing as well. Listeners go to the show notes. I'm going to put some links for some things that you can check out Joey's work on. When you hear the word compassion, what's that mean to you? Hmm. Well, my favorite wor- word in the world is empathy. So we're, we're synonymous there. Um, the, the thing that I, um, well, it's really the most important thing. That's what I think. Um, and I, I know I'm taking compassion away from you, but I believe empathy is the most important thing. I've said it recently. I don't really care politically what you, some of the things you think either way, I want I want the most empathetic person. I want the most compassionate person being the person that's leading me. And every, every day I ask my kids, like, uh, what did, what did you do that was kind today? You know, what, what did you do that was, um, how did you show empathy to people? We talk about what the most important things are. So when I think about, um, compassion and empathy. I think about um, the things I aspire for people to say about me. Love that. I just want to say, I wish you nothing but success going forward. I hope I see your name in big bright light somewhere. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do this again. Absolutely. Uh, I would have to talk about the anxiety. I'll just tell you about the guest actors that are coming up to me and and how nice I, how I wink at them before they're seen. (laughs) There we go. There we go. If you want extra five, five more minutes of this conversation with Joey, go to beforethelightspod.com slash support. And for merchandise, go to beforethelightspod.com slash merch. Follow me on Instagram at beforethelightspodcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everyone, I salute a chin chin. Chin chin.